In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, so we're, we're now to our final talk. Um, and the, the talk tonight is about the heart of Christ. You know, we've been focusing a lot on this theme of the, the inner person of the, the hidden person of the heart. Um, and um, tonight we're gonna look at, so what are the, some of these attributes of Christ's own heart? Right, and how some of these virtues that represent Christ's own heart are virtues that are important for us in terms of the interior life and in our, in our own spiritual journey. When we think of the, the Beatitudes, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, sometimes we think of the Beatitudes in terms of uh, sort of instructions to us, you know, commandments and, and, and instructions to us. But in reality, many of, the, um, of the, those who comment on the scriptures see the Beatitudes first and foremost as a portrait of the person of Jesus himself. So when, when Jesus is telling us about blessed are the, the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted, and so on, he's in a sense first and foremost painting for us a portrait of himself. And, and, and therefore, by extension, the Beatitudes are a portrait of, of the saints and a portrait of each of us who, who seek to follow Christ in that life of perfection. So if we look at the first of the Beatitudes, um, we see that this Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is sort of the gateway that opens for us the, the Beatitudes in, its, in, their, in their fullness and, and, and really has a, 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 a sort of pronounced place among the other Beatitudes. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So ultimately, the one who is most perfectly poor in spirit is Christ. Right? When, we thought, when we talked earlier today about Christ being a receptivity of the Father, being a total receptivity of the Father, in, in a sense, this becomes... Uh, an image for us of what it means to be poor in spirit. Somebody who is poor in spirit is somebody who is, is in a position of receiving and, and, and in, a, in a state of, again, capacity, receptivity. Um, the word in, um, in Greek for poor uh, doesn't simply mean like uh, a, a poor person, but it can actually even mean a beggar, somebody who begs. Right? So in, in a sense, those of us, of course, Christ is not a beggar, but he is, he is poor in spirit by, by virtue of his humility and by virtue of, again, him being this receptivity of the Father. But for, for us, this image of beggar can be helpful because a beggar is somebody who's completely dependent on someone else, right? So a beggar is somebody who has nothing in and of themselves, that they can claim sort of any sort of status or stature and, and therefore they are completely at the mercy of, of, of another. Right? And so the poor in spirit then is somebody who can only receive. He has nothing or she has nothing that she can give. Um, and this is an image for us of the spiritual life, right? Again, this idea of receiving. Um, The poor person is somebody who is, in a sense, hopeless without the assistance of another. 
right? And so therefore, the poor person, the beggar, has no, no pretension, no um, uh, self-righteousness. There's nothing that the person can boast of. And so this then becomes sort of the way that we imitate, we imitate Christ in his poverty, right? Is that we become uh, someone like a beggar who is in a state of receptivity, who can only receive. He cannot offer anything of, uh, of himself. I think I mentioned, uh, I think maybe last night, another book that I recommended called God Alone Suffices. Um, the last name of the author is Biela, B-I-E-L-A. Um, and in this book, he really spends a lot of time sort of going deeper into this idea of spiritual poverty. So I'm going to read just a couple of quotes that he says. He says, we need to cultivate an attitude of a beggar who puts all of his trust in God's mercy without fearing that he will die of starvation. God generously pours spiritual crumbs on us, even if we do not notice them. There are plenty of crumbs to satisfy all our spiritual needs. It is sufficient to stand before God as the poorest of all, gesturing as a beggar who stretches his hands to God, awaiting everything from him. Our Savior wants us to constantly cry out for God's mercy, even when we think that our prayer is worthless. Only God knows the true value of our prayer. He says elsewhere, all of our pretenses are contradictory to the posture of a beggar. The beggar is such only when he is begging. When he stops begging, he very quickly begins to think that he is somebody else. Perhaps he put away some money he had received. The moment he stops begging and dresses up nicely, people will no longer consider him a beggar. Speaking in the spiritual sense, it does not matter whether you stop begging because you are preoccupied with your current work or whether it happens while kneeling at prayer. The moment you stop turning to God with a humble plea for mercy, you immediately cease to acknowledge the truth that you will always remain a beggar before God. So it might seem sort of harsh to think of ourselves as beggars as if somehow this diminishes us or demeans us in front of God. But in fact, the more we are stripped of any pretension of, of having anything of ourselves, the more that we are not um, have any sort of um, claim to any sort of self-righteousness, the more God can give us, the more we can be empty and he can fill us with his own life. So this is the idea of what it means to be a beggar, to be completely stripped of any pretension. Another spiritual father said, we must descend into the night of our nothingness, empty and impoverished, in order to begin crying out like a poor one. We must take the way of descent. On our spiritual path, it is, blessed hour, it is a blessed hour when our human reliances crumble one after the other. We are never deep enough. Our prayer must surge from the depths of our distress. Right? And we were talked about this a little bit earlier that, you know, this idea of going backwards in the spiritual life, or at least feeling that we're going backwards, could in fact, in reality, be an experience of, of deeper spiritual poverty. Right? We perceive it as going backwards, but what's really happening is we're, we're entering into a, a greater descent, a greater descent into our nothingness. And from that will surge a greater intensity and purity of our prayer life. We will really cry out saying, Lord, have mercy, as if our lives really depended on it, not as a, a sort of routine or, or habit. So spiritual poverty can sometimes feel like, you know, we're, we're digressing. 
because we've become more and more aware of how impoverished we are, how poor we are, how weak we are, how sinful we are. But in fact, all that's happening is that things that were hidden under our pretentious sort of way of life become more and more exposed. So the purpose of our spiritual poverty, of course, is to receive from God ultimately everything that he wants to offer us. And we talked before about how the greatest gift that he offers us is that spiritual sonship, right? That adoption in Christ. Father Jacques Philippe in his book, Interior Freedom, says, this is why humility, spiritual poverty is so precious. It locates our identity securely in the one place where it will be safe from all harm. If our treasure is in God, no one can take it from us. Humility is truth. I am what I am in God's eyes, a poor child who possesses absolutely nothing, who receives everything, infinitely loved and totally free. I have received everything in advance from the freely bestowed love of my Father, who said to me definitively, all that is mine is yours. Right, so, so spiritual poverty places me securely in my identity, not as the diminishment of my identity, not as a, uh, as a sort of humiliation, but as a reality of securing for me my true identity as being a child of God. And this is how the Gospel of St. John begins, right? St. John says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And we spoke earlier about St. Paul, how he says, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, you know, that we receive that spirit of adoption by which we cry out, what, Abba, Father. So this is, this is the most important um, sort of fruit of spiritual poverty, is that we, we find that identity of ours securely in the hands of God. Another aspect that we can think of in terms of the heart of Christ, of course, is meekness. Right? We know that he spoke of this very directly in saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Right? So it's one of the very few times that Christ himself speaks of himself and says, imitate this in me. And, and that quality is meekness. So meekness is, is essentially a divine quality. There is in God this sense of infinite meekness. And we want to, in a sense, distinguish meekness from humility. So he speaks of his, the loneliness of his heart, the poverty of his soul, but also of this quality of meekness. St. Paul, in um, his epistle to the, the Corinthians, says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you. It's really remarkable that St. That Paul never met Christ other than the vision that he had, right? at least as far as what's revealed to us, the vision on the road to Damascus. So he didn't have an experience with Christ like the apostles did in the Gospels. And yet, what he, what he defines as being the heart of Christ is his meekness. He says, I plead with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you. Right? So even St. Paul has this keen sense that the quality of Christ's heart is that of a meek person. And in the Gospel of St. Matthew, quoting the, um, the, the uh, prophet Isaiah, 
It says about the heart of Christ, about his, this quality of meekness, he says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. You know, so a reed that has a bruise in it becomes very, very fragile. It will easily break. Or you can think of like a, a smoldering wick that is about to go out. It's just about to be extinguished, right? And, 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 and Christ is, is defined as being the one who will not inflict that sort of final, you know, blow to the bruised reed or to the smoldering wick. So what is the definition of meekness then? It's, it's, it's one of those... Uh, words that's sort of hard to define in a very simple way, right? It encompasses gentleness, goodness, patience, humility, softness, peacefulness, goodwill, self-possession, non-violence, or non, a non-angry person, right? All of these are sort of what define like a meek person. There's a certain gentle quality to, to somebody who is meek. The person has a, a strong sense of restraint. They don't have, possess sort of the... the, the um, the zeal that turns into anger. So, but weak, meekness is not meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not cowardice. Um, in the Bible, when the when 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 the Bible speaks about meekness, it's not in a passive sense. A meek person is not somebody who just allows things to happen to them. But a meek person is somebody who is proactively choosing a life of again gentleness and kindness and goodness. Right. So it's not it's not a repressed sense, but it's somebody who, who, who strives for this quality. And in the Beatitudes, again, we, we hear that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right. So one way of thinking of meekness is meekness is self-possession. Right? In the Gospel of St. Luke, Chapter 21, verse 19, the Lord says, By your patience, possess your souls. Or another translation would read, By your patient endurance, possess your souls. Right? So there's, there's a sense in which we are called to have a sense of, uh, a certain sense of self-possession. Right? Self-mastery. So the, weak the meek person is somebody who has that self-mastery of themselves. They are not given over to anger and to injustice. Injustice, um, and so meekness allows the, a, a person to do good in response to evil because they possess themselves. Right? Saint John of the Ladder in the Ladder of Divine Ascent says, "Meekness is an unchanging state of mind, which both in honor and dishonor remains the same. Meekness is a cliff rising from the sea of irritability, against which all the waves that strive against it break, but which itself is never broken." Right. So this unchanging, this st stability, this rising cliff that resists ir irritability, and so on. So, and there's a relationship between meekness and simplicity. Pope Shenouda, in one of his books, says, The meek are easy to deal with. He is simple. He has no cunning, craftiness, or malice, as we spoke about earlier. He is plain, does not complicate matters. He is clear in his dealings, does not beat around the bush. Dealing with them gives comfort because he is simple, clear, and pleasant. He is gentle, sweet, and good-natured. And there's a relationship between meekness and faith. 
St. Dorotheos of Gaza says, One great means of preserving a constant peace and tranquility of heart is to receive all things as coming from the hands of God, whatever they might be and in whatever they may come. Right? So this unchanging perseverance, tranquility, and gentleness is able to withstand even the great trials and the things that might disturb us. Um, and so meekness has a certain stability to it. To it. And Elder Paisius says, sometimes God allows for a, a relative or a fellow worker to cause us problems in order to exercise our patience and humility. However, instead of being grateful for the chance God gives us, we react and refuse to be cured. It is like refusing to pay the doctor who is giving us a shot when we are ill. Right? So, so meekness is the opportunity for us, you know, to, or to exercise meekness as an opportunity for us to grow in virtue. But oftentimes we resist. And so he says it's like refusing to pay the doctor who's giving us a shot because we're sick. And we see in the lives of many saints this blessed virtue of meekness. I would say Pope Rulus was a, was a great example of this virtue of meekness. There are so many stories of this sense of self-possession, right? This sense of restraint, of refusing to give in to the impulse of anger or revenge or, or you know, to lash out at somebody. I don't know if you've heard the story of uh, uh, in the early days of, of Father Mina, uh, Pope Krolos when he was Father Mina in Old Cairo um, about Uncle Fikri. So Uncle Fikri was, uh, was one of these elderly deacons that um, was, was helping Father Mina in the liturgies in Old Cairo. But he was a bit of a stubborn person, you know, uh, unlike some of our good old uncle deacons, you know. Um, who sort of was set in his ways and sort of was like, you know, things have to be done a certain way. And so when he um, was going to pray with, uh, with Pope Gross, with Father Mina in Old Cairo, he told him, um, you know, we have to have an agreement so that, you know, each of us respects the other person. You know, you don't cut me off and I don't cut you off. You do your priest parts, I do my deacon parts. So Abuna Mina told him, yes, of course, right? And, um, and so in, in one of these liturgies, when Abu Namina seems like he wasn't feeling well or he was trying to rush a little bit through the liturgy and uh, Uncle Fikri was, uh, was responding outside and Abu Namina sort of started his, his next part before he finished the outside response. And then he continued the liturgy and then all of a sudden he didn't hear anybody responding outside. So he looked back and he wasn't there anymore. So he, he told the deacon who was serving inside, he said, and this is in the middle of the liturgy. So he tells him, here, hold the candle and wait. So he goes outside, he finds Uncle Fikri outside. He says, what are you doing? He says, we had an agreement. You broke the agreement. He's like, I'm sorry. He's like, we, we make an agreement from, 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 from now again. He's like, khalas, we make an, a new agreement. But you see, like, Pope Krulis could, I mean, what could he, how could he have responded? He could have told him, take your tunya off and, and get out. You're right. I mean, he could have responded in many, many different ways. But do you see sort of this, this deep meekness that he, he exemplifies by just sort of possessing his, you know, what could have been his reaction and, and humbly responding to this person. Later, when Pope Krulus became patriarch, a similar thing happened when they were praying in the cathedral. And 
you know, the part where it says, therefore, as we also commemorate his holy passion, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the heavens, saying, right? Um, and the people are, uh, are saying, I mean, I mean, I mean, your death, O Lord. And then the, the, the priest says, therefore, as we all commemorate. And then after that, you know, um, um, the, the deacons respond. So Pope Corlys, you know, as they were saying, I mean, I mean, I mean, he finished, he did the next part um, in, in silently. And then he just, he, he did the last part of what we, he was supposed to pray, the part out loud, but then he said the last part out loud, but he said the full first part silently while they were saying, I mean, I mean, I mean. So they're saying, I mean, I mean, I mean, and Pope Carlos is saying silently, therefore, as we also commemorate his passion's resurrection from the descent. And then he says the very last part out loud. So Uncle Fickery doesn't respond. So he said, he turns around to him and he says, are you going to respond? He said, what should I respond to? You didn't say anything. You didn't say your part. So Pope Carlos says, so you want me to repeat it? He said, repeat it. So he went back and said, therefore, as we also commemorate your holy passion. <laughs> So these stories are humorous, but, but they show, again, like a remarkable self-control, a remarkable self-mastery of, 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 of himself, a remarkable gentleness and patience in dealing with somebody who could have easily been reprimanded um, for, for clearly being out of line. Um, so th these are just examples of, of sort of the meekness that, that is the heart of Christ, right? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Then the, the third virtue is that of modesty. Now it might seem sort of strange to think about modesty as relating to the heart or the mind of Christ, but when we think about if we, if we go a little bit deeper into what the virtue of modesty is, I think we will discover that it means much more than we, than we might have previously thought. In the second um, chapter of Philippians, we know that beautiful passage that begins, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Right? But that verse comes directly after St. Paul says, let nothing, this is um, in, the, in Philippians 2, but just before that, that part about let this mind be in you, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vanity, but humbly regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Right? So St. Paul says, you know, don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. And then he says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Right? So this, this sense of giving great consideration to my neighbor, right? thinking of my neighbor before myself. Of course, that's, a, that's an aspect of humility, but it, but it also is an aspect of modesty. Right? Because modesty is, is ultimately not about clothing. It's not about our, how we sort of um, adorn ourselves externally. But modesty is ultimately about considering the person in front of me. It might govern the decisions I make about things like clothing and, and, and my actions and my words. But ultimately, the motive behind modesty is that I'm considering my neighbor. Right. So modesty is a virtue that presents goodness 
in the proper way, making no display of talents or attainments and being humble about one's importance. So just like meekness is a, is a form of restraint, modesty is also a form of restraint. But with modesty, what we're restraining is that which is sort of inherently mine and my right and my talents and my attainments and my beauty and my everything that is sort of defines something about myself without making a display of it that might affect my neighbor. So modesty isn't ultimately about clothing, it's about anything that would provoke my neighbor. So modesty protects the intimate center of the person. It means refusing to unveil that which should remain hidden. So it's about not putting on display things that, again, going back to our first talk, we, we see a value in hiding. We could look at it very simply and say Christian modesty is the refusal to show off anything that belongs to us, whether that means our talents or even our bodies. Conversely, an immodest person is not simply somebody who dresses immodestly, but it's a person who unveils something that should be hidden. Right? It's, some, it's something who displays something that shouldn't necessarily be displayed. And the motive for that is my love for my neighbor. Not because in and of itself it's inherently wrong. Right? And this is, I think, where we miss the concept of modesty. We think that we should, we should be modest because to be immodest is sinful. But the point is not that the immodesty in and of itself is sinful. The point is that the immodesty is what hurts my neighbor. Right? So it's a lack of love and charity towards my neighbor. It's really, at its core, a, a certain concern and protection and love of my neighbor. I value the other in front of me more than I value my own rights. I value protecting them more than I value displaying something that I have a right to display, whether it's a spiritual or a physical talent or a feature. So Christian modesty doesn't say, well, if they are offended or if they stumble because of me, well, that's their problem. They're weak. This is the, the very opposite of what Christian charity is, is we put the burden on the other person. We say, well, if they are going to get offended because I have this virtue or this talent that I'm displaying, well, the problem is with them. It's not with me. Or modesty would say, you know, an immodest sort of attitude would say, well, if I provoke a certain person with my appearance, or by displaying a certain talent, well, again, it's their problem because they're weak. It's not my problem. So the fruit of modesty, of course, affects our speech, our dress, our manners, our gifts and talents, our personal rights, our words. Everything is under a certain custody because we think about our neighbor and we evaluate how all of these things will affect my neighbor. So how is this actually lived out in the church? Because again, I don't want to reduce modesty to simply saying, you know, it's about how one dresses. Because again, the, the virtue of modesty is so much more, is so much bigger than that. Well, we can think about it through, again, some examples from the lives of the saints and, and the Desert Fathers. We see that one aspect of this modest way of life is by giving preference to the other giving the person in front of me a preference over myself. 
We know that Pope Carolus, for example, was very capable to preach. He was very theologically astute. He uh, was at the sort of the top of his you know, theological studies when he was uh, at the theological school for monks in Helwan. He wrote articles for, the, for a newsletter that he was handwriting, and it was, they were very deep articles. So there was nothing in his life that suggested that he was not capable of giving sermons. But he never gave sermons. He gave preference to other bishops and priests to give the sermons in his presence. Right? So there, there's a certain modesty there, right, of not saying, well, I'm the patriarch, so you know, I have to do all of these things. We can see the virtue of modesty even in the act of forgiveness. If we look at it in terms of, again, I forgive not because I only, not, not only because I have to forgive as a commandment, but I forgive because I consider my neighbor who's weak. I consider not putting my neighbor in a position to even seek my forgiveness, but I forgive them before they even ask for it. Which is what one of the Desert Fathers said when he was asked, what's a definition of a humble person? He said, it's to forgive your, your brother who has wronged you before he himself asks for forgiveness. I don't make forgiveness something difficult for the other person to, achieve, for, to, to ask for, but I go and give it to him or her before they even ask for it. Again, it's a, it's a form of extreme consideration for my neighbor. We see in the examples of the Desert Fathers, modesty also sort of shown in this, um, this sense of bearing the burdens of the weak, you know, uh, not exposing the weak brother, hiding the weaknesses of, of, of the brothers of the monastery. And one of the stories of the Desert Fathers says when the abbot of the monastery was going to start the divine liturgy, he discovered that his, his sadra was missing, his, his priestly stole was missing. The abbot said there would be no liturgy until the stole was returned, and nothing happened. So the abbot ordered that every room in the monastery was to be searched. One young monk immediately went to an old monk who had the reputation of being a very saintly father, and he confessed to the old monk that he had taken the stole of the abbot. The elder monk told the young monk not to fear, but to hide his stole in his own cell, the cell of the elder. So, of course, the stole was found in the old monk's cell, and despite his reputation as being a saint, the other monks were furious at him and the old, at the old man and denounced him as being a fraud and a thief. They even severely beat him, the story says. The old man begged for mercy and promised to repent, but the other monks did not want a thief in their monastery, and they expelled him from the monastery. The monks then assembled in the church for the liturgy, but God sent an angel to the church and prevented the abbot from approaching the altar. The abbot told the brothers that they need to bring the old man back and have compassion toward him. When they brought the old man back, the angel allowed the liturgy to proceed. So we see stories like this, beautiful stories like this, repeated throughout the Desert Fathers. This sense of covering up for the weakness of another. Right? There's, there's a sense of modesty in that. In our conversations, when we talked about silence of speech, that's a form of modesty. I don't need to display everything that I know. I don't need to dominate conversations. I don't need to show everybody that I, that I have the answers to everything. Right? One of the, the beautiful contemporary saints of our church is Abuna Andraus Samuili. I don't know if, if some of you have heard of him. He was that blessed elderly monk from St. Samuel's Monastery who was blind. He lived to be, I think, 102 years old. Some of you might know the, the famous story of the cat that used to 
um, accompany him and lead him in the monastery because of his blindness. But when something very beautiful in his biography, the, the monk who wrote his biography said, we never noted him, that is Abun Andrawis, we never noted him speaking violently to anybody, nor did he ever impose his opinion on anybody, nor did he try to master a discussion on any subject. He had no ambitions, no, he, he had no ambitions or gains to realize, and so did not enter into heated, heated discussions with anyone. Right? So this extreme form of restraint Right? Does it mean that he was ignorant and he couldn't participate in conversations and that he didn't have something valuable to say? But that extreme sense of modesty sort of he held him back from, again, sort of taking over conversations or jumping into conversations and mastering in those conversations or entering into sort of debates or heated discussions. And even when he saw something wrong in somebody else, Abuna Krulus and Makari, the one who um, who said this comment in his biography said, he is too shy to tell a man that he is in the wrong as he himself is overly sensitive concerning his own sins. So the person who has this beautiful sense of modesty is so focused on, on, on him or herself that he doesn't have the ability to even point out something wrong in someone else. Um, I heard from, uh, for those of you who know Abuna Mark Paul from the Abbey in our diocese, so he, he, he grew up um, spending a lot of summers in the monastery of St. Samuel. And though he didn't meet, I don't think he ever met Abuna Andrawis himself, um, I think Abuna Andrawis uh, reposed in the late 1980s and so Abuna was probably too young to have ever met him. Um, but he heard many stories from the monks that, that you know, lived in the era of Abuna Andrawis. And he told me once that um, the monks told him that sometimes they would test Abun Andraus, like with his, um, his, his like, obedience and his, his simplicity and humility. He had no, um, um, he, he didn't have like any sense of like having a strong self-will, like, you know, will for, him, for, him, for his own desires. So they would sort of, they would say, watch this, you know, and they would test, they would say, like, Abun Andraus, get up, we're going to go eat. And he would immediately get up and wait to be taken to. And then they would tell him, no, Abuna, you're not going to eat today. And he would sit down again. And they would say, Abuna, get up, we're going to go pray in the church. And he would get up. And they would say, no, Abuna, you're not going to pray. And then he would sit down. And they would, they would do this to him, and they would show just like how much he was sort of like dead to his own will. He didn't have any, any like self-will. He was completely given over to, to his brethren. You know, just, again, like a, a very uh, intense experience of like somebody who's dead to the world and dead to himself. In, in his biography, he said, he used to eat if food was served to him, but if the fathers happened to forget him, he never asked anybody for it. So he'd sometimes go without even eating because he was too, he didn't want to point out that somebody forgot to feed him. I told you the story about um, St. Bishoy and the, and the younger monk. Um, I don't know if we said it in the, I think we, we said it in more uh, uh, informal conversation. But this, this story that I was referring to last night, um, I think is also 
an important one about meekness because it helps us to recognize how God gives a unique grace to each person in their struggles, right? And so the story says that our Lord visited uh, St. Beshoi to teach him about acceptable good works. St. Beshoi was fasting for 21 days. Our Lord Jesus Christ came to him and said, Oh, my chosen Beshoi, your soul has been very courageous. St. Beshoi said to him, My Lord, my confidence rests upon you that you will strengthen me. Because of this, I do not have any weaknesses at all. Our Lord led him, directing him to a weak brother who had fasted for just two days. Abba Beshoi saw him falling down upon the ground and stumbling this way and that and looking for something cool and some air from the suffering of the fasting. Without completing two days, he wanted rest. St. Beshoi said to our Lord, My Lord, what is the problem with this brother? Our Lord said to him, It is because he fasted the night. St. Beshoi said to him, How many nights since he began to fast until he fell and was thrown to the ground? Our Lord said to him, From when I created him, I did not deprive him of a meal a single day except for this night. And see, I have sent upon him hunger and weakness. But as for you, having fasted for 21 days, did you perceive the affliction was like this? Abba Bishoy said, No, my Lord, but I wish that you would tell me what are you going to do to give, what are you going to give this brother and what will be his reward? And here the, the, the beautiful response, our Lord said to him, I will give him his wages such as I will give to you. As for you, I have strengthened you against fasting and hunger. This wage is a portion to you who does not have the strength. Sorry, this wage is a portion to one who does not have the strength and who will suffer according to this, his measure for my name. I tell you, enter now into the joy of your Lord. Right? I will give him his wages such as I will give to you. The one who fasted for two days and the one who fasted for 21 days. Right? So the, mo the modest person, again, has this sense of recognizing that God's grace is working in each person and not to make comparisons. One of the very sort of um, um, humorous stories in the Desert Fathers is about the two hermits who, who never fought together. I don't know if you heard the story about the two, the two hermits who never fought together. But this again shows us a sense of modesty in avoiding arguments, avoiding quarrels. So the story is that two hermits lived together for many years without ever fighting together. They never had a quarrel. So one day, one of them said to the other, let's have a quarrel with each other as other men do. The other answered, I, don't know, I do not know how to quarrel. I, don't know, I do not know how a quarrel happens. The first said, look here, I will put a brick between us. And I will say, that's mine. Then you will say, no, it's mine. And this is how we will begin to have a quarrel. So they put a brick between them, and one of them said, that's mine. The other said, no, it's mine. And then the other one said, yes, it's yours. Take it away. And they were unable to have a quarrel. <laughs> so we see this sort of beautiful innocence and simplicity that they're not, even though they wanted to have a fight, to be like other people in the world, like us, they couldn't. They couldn't hurt the other person. They couldn't, they couldn't deprive the other person. right? That's sort of this extreme modesty. Um, in the life of another great ascetic in the seventh century, his name is uh, Abba Pesentius. Um, we read about how um, in the Desert Fathers, often they try to hide sort of any of their spiritual gifts or any of their talents. So the story says that a couple of brothers 
a couple of men had come to visit Abba Pacentius, but when they came to him, they heard him from outside of his cell that he was reciting the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is pretty big. And he was reciting it very clearly and, and calmly. So they said, you know, let's not disturb him. We'll wait for him to finish his recitation of the scriptures. So they waited outside until he finished the whole book of Jeremiah. And then as he was finishing the book of Jeremiah, the two men got up to knock on his door. And at the very moment that they were about to knock on his door, he began to recite the book of Ezekiel. So they sat down again and said, let's not disturb the Abba until he finishes his recitation of the scriptures. Finally, after he finished the whole book of Ezekiel, he says that evening now had come. They had come in the morning and now it was evening. And the two men knocked on the door and Abba Pacentius answered them and saying, bless me. He looked out upon them from the large window and he spoke to them saying, did you come to this place many hours ago? Because it was at night. So he thought, hmm, how long have you been here? So, did you come to this place many hours ago? And they said to him, we came here at dawn. That's pretty early. But we did not dare to cry out to you until you had finished your recitation of the Holy Scriptures. Then straight away Abba Pacentius wept, and he began to beat his breast, and he said to them, this day I deserve a very great punishment, and all the labors which I have performed are things of vanity. Now these things which the holy man spoke showed that he fled from the vain adulations of men. He was very sad at heart, but the two men knew that he was reciting the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now therefore, O oh my beloved, the author is telling us that the saints yearn for the glory of God only. Right? So here we see Abba Pesentius when he finds out that they were there and they, they knew that he was doing this great work of reciting the scriptures, that he began to weep and, and to lament over himself and that he sort of revealed something of his inner life that he wanted to hide, right? And, and this is, um, you know, seen in another story of the Desert Fathers where an elderly um, uh, monk came into the church of the monastery and he looked around and he didn't find anybody there and he began to pray with a great cry from his heart. And then he discovered that in the corner of the church was a young novice. And when he realized that his his inner prayer was exposed. He went to the young novice and he did a prostration. He said, forgive me, for I have not yet made a beginning. And so what's happening in this is that this elderly monk felt like he exposed something that might cause the young novice to be jealous. Right? He exposed something of his inner life where the young novice might feel like, Oh, I can't pray like that. I can't, I can't have a relationship with God like that. And his job was to protect his brother, to protect especially the weaker brother. So he repented at having, in a sense, shown something of his inner life that could cause the younger brother to be jealous. So this is sort of like, again, like examples of how modesty should be understood. It's the protection of my brother. Right? Even at hiding something that is rightfully beautiful and good in its own, in its own way, but, but preserving it and hiding it so as not to hurt or to provoke my neighbor. And glory be to God forever, I mean. Q&A? Sure.
I'm struggling with disbelief in God and mistrust in Him. How can I fight against this? It's very difficult to answer a question like that. That's very it's in a, in a, presented in a very generic way. I mean, I think I would I would want to sit with the person to understand. You know, sort of, what is their faith journey from before this point? You know, what what was their faith like? You know, before arriving at a point where they were struggling with belief and, and distrusting God, because there could be a number of things that could have happened that sort of caused wounds in this person's journey that, that led them to this point. Um, so, I mean, my I think the simple answer would be, you know, to sit with a spiritual father, to sit with somebody, and you know, open your heart to them and 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 see. You know, again, what what are some of the the reasons that led to this point in your spiritual journey, and and you know maybe get some advice from a spiritual father who can help you get back on track on on the life of faith. But I think it's it's just very hard for me to address it like in such a generic way. How does modesty fit into prayer meetings? Hmm. Very good. Um, we were talking, I think, yesterday about how what's beautiful about sort of our orthodox. Um, Worship is that, you know, in our orthodox way of life, we, especially when it comes to how we worship, we all sort of follow um, a system of worship that puts us all together in the same category, right? And I don't mean the, necessarily the ranks, right? We, in the ranking, of course, we have, you know, priests doing certain function, liturgical function, but, but when we're praying together, Right? We, 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 we make the same sort of ritual ge gestures at the same time. You know, so we stand together, we sit together. You know, there are certain times of the liturgy that we cross ourselves. There are certain times of the liturgy that we bow, that we maybe we lift up our hands. Um, you know, so we do all of these things in a way that doesn't cause anybody to stand out. Right? If I was giving the example yesterday that if, in the, you know, if we're praying liturgy and then all of a sudden in the middle of the liturgy, like the commemoration of the saints, somebody comes in the middle aisle and starts doing you know, 15 prostrations. What will happen? He'll draw attention to himself and will create a lot of, you know, uh, why is he doing that or who does he think he is? Or maybe you know, somebody who feels jealous, like, oh, I don't have that kind of piety. Look how pious that person is. Look how holy they are. They, you know, they're making prostrations. Whatever, whatever, whatever thoughts it might provoke in us, um, whether it's jealous thoughts or judgmental thoughts, um, you, you know, so we don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't cultivate an environment in which we allow those things to happen. Right? We have the opportunity in our personal prayer life to make prostrations, to to worship in a way that is um, hidden from 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 one another, and in that we have more freedom. You know, uh, you want to pray with with great cries and beating your chest. You want to pray kneeling on the. You want to do prostrations. All of that is sort of something secret between you and God. But when we come together, we protect one another, so we don't provoke one another either to judgment or to jealousy. So I think. When, you, when it comes to prayer meetings, we also have to try to apply that same principle. You know, I think if we're, if we're in a prayer meeting and, and you know, we're called upon to each say a prayer, we should, we should, we should not, in a sense, sort of display uh, too much um, uh, zeal or emotion in our, in our prayer, in, in a sense that, is, that, might, that might provoke a response from somebody else. I think, I think it's okay for us to pray 
you know, even spontaneous prayers and, and, and to share, you know, if somebody wants to say a prayer in the microphone, I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think, you know, we have to do it in a modest way, a humble way. Nothing that just manifests too much of a display of anything. I mean, that's how I would. In this day and age, it's very common to hear that rather than placing the blame on the person who caused someone to stumble, rather we should blame the individual who clearly has a skewed way of thinking and fell. But this is against what we believe as Christians, as you said. Mm. But how do you balance when someone picks anything that you do out and labels it as a stumbling block, even though you thought you were truly being modest, not just in the context of clothing? Yeah. Well, I think I think it's a learning process for all of us. Like I think I think you know, as we grow in the virtues, we we sort of develop a more refined sense of what it means to be modest, right? And so I think we have to be, of course, uh, tolerant of each other to to grow into that sense of modesty. But I think what's important is that I, I wanted just to shift this idea of putting the burden on the one who's offended. Which it's true. It's not to say that that person doesn't have a, a responsibility or an obligation to, let's say, not be um, provoked by by some uh, something that another person does or, or wears or whatever. Um, but but we can't we can't have a Christian attitude in which we simply say the burden is on somebody else. The Christian way of life is to say no. The burden is first and, first and foremost on me. That that's that's the very like definition of love. Right? I mean, maybe a very crude way of thinking of this would be, would you go to a poor person on the street who, who, who is just looking for a piece of bread and pull out your, your ribeye steak and start eating your ribeye steak and say, well, if you get offended, if, I'm st if, you're, if it's a stumbling block for you, that's your fault, you're weak. Right? I mean, we wouldn't say that, right? We would care to, to pr protect that person from displaying something that might hurt the person, right? Um, or if you, you know, I would, I would look at it even in examples of like, um, I know this is going to get maybe a little bit controversial, so you could just take it as, this is just my opinion. Um, but even let's say if you're, if, you're, if you're a guy that goes to the gym and you work out, you know, and you're, and you're, and you're saying, well, I, you know, I did a lot of hard work to work out, you know, now, now I want to be able to take my shirt off and, and let's say at a church retreat. And, uh, and you know that somebody is there, or you, even if you don't know, but, you, but perhaps somebody is there who, who's been really struggling with their body image. You know, somebody who's gone to the gym but hasn't been able to get rid of that gut or whatever it is that they're struggling, you know, and maybe you take your shirt off, that person feels really sort of sad. You know, you could easily say, well, hey, that's his problem. Like, I mean, if, if this guy has a bad body image or if this guy is gonna be um, offended because I took my shirt off, that's his problem. Yeah, you could do that, but that's the whole point. I'm saying you have the right. You have the right. You know, you have the right to display whatever you want to display. But is that really Christian charity? Is that really Christian consideration of your neighbor? Is that really thinking of the other person before you think of yourself and your own rights? I agree that it is a sort of injustice to yourself. That's the whole point. You are, you are agreeing to a sort of injustice to yourself in order, be, in order to display love for somebody else. Now, I, I understand that these things are not black and white, right? I mean, I wouldn't say, okay, you go to the beach so you shouldn't take your shirt off because you might provoke. No, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a context, right? But, 
But there are times in which we're in a, in a context of a Christian gathering or a church gathering or a church event, and we have to think of one another. Again, not about clothing or, or, or muscles or whatever, but even how we speak, how we act, how, what we talk about, you know. Um, we, have to, we have to think about how people are very vulnerable and, and at times, you know, going through things that what we say and what we do and, what, and how we act might really affect them, you know. And sometimes we don't know and that's okay. We, there's no intentional um, hurt there. Uh, but sometimes, you know, again, we think of it in terms of, well, you know, it's my right. And if somebody's offended or if somebody's hurt or if somebody's provoked or somebody's jealous, that's their issue. So I just, I, I guess I'm presenting it to you as, you know, something for you to pray about, to think about, to, you know, to evaluate in your own life. I'm just showing you saints examples who went to the extreme of protecting their neighbor, protecting their brother. This, old, this elderly monk had every right to pray in the church, but when he realized that his prayer might provoke jealousy in the young novice, he saw himself as a sinner and that he did wrong. His concern for his brother was more important than even praying in front of God in the church. So, we get to one more question, but this question kind of ties in with the previous question. What is the difference between displaying modesty slash humility and using the talents you were given publicly and not being prideful? Yeah, so the, the talents that were given for the edification of the church um, you know, is not, is not a sign of immodesty, right? I mean, a priest who, you know, um, again, a priest who is giving a sermon, you know, a, a bishop who's performing his function as a bishop, a deacon who's doing his function as a deacon. But we still have to think about, you know, like Father Zacharias, he said something very, very beautiful. He said, um, he said, even priests, for example, he said, it's not, it's not appropriate for a young priest Again, this is just, you, you can try to understand what he's saying in this. He's saying it's not appropriate for a young priest to weep in the liturgy. Right? He said it's, it's okay for an elderly man because sometimes at, at that stage in, in, in his life, it becomes more difficult to, to, to sort of have that control over his tears. But for a young priest, he should not, early in his, in his life as a priest, display such emotion in the liturgy. I remember when he said that, I was like, wow, this is, this is really like orthodox culture. You know, this idea of like even to control your emotion in, your, in the liturgy as a priest so that you don't cause somebody else to be jealous. You know, the deacons should do the same thing and how they perform their functions. I'm not saying have a bad voice, you know, on purpose, but I'm saying do it in a way that doesn't overly display it, uh, your talent. You know, that's modesty, you know. Um, so, so we have to fulfill our functions. You know, I'm not being modest by saying, you know, sorry today to my congregation, there's no sermon because I'm so modest. You know, <laughs> like that's 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 not humility. That's not modesty. Um, but but I don't need to also make a show. You know, I also don't need to sort of display something that's a little bit over the top in order to you know um, cause a reaction. So again. I, I realize that there's a lot of gray in some of this, right? And that's why we need discernment. We need sort of the Spirit of God to help us, you know, um, exercise our talents and our gifts in a way that builds up the church, but doesn't, as again, provoke 
the weak members. So, can I ask one more question? Yeah. In the story of Gunandros not eating and not fed, yeah. what is the difference between being modest slash meek and being careless and not speaking up? It all depends on your strength, I think. You know, someone like Abu Nandraus, you know, reached a very high level of spirituality where he could go without food. And for him, that was more important. And there was no resentment on his part. He wasn't bitter or angry. He just literally, you know, lived in such a way in which he just ate when he was told to eat. You know, um, when he was, he spent a few years in the, monast in the um, hospital in Alexandria in, in the latter part of his life. So a lot of the things that we know about Abu Nandrawas came, came out during that time because it was really the first time that he was away from the monastery and people were visiting him and you know, had a, the lay people had a chance to, to see him and other clergy were seeing him and, and the hospital staff you know, were with him and caring for him. And they said in the hospital that the, uh, it was a Christian hospital, the director of the hospital, he would go to him and say, Abuna, what, what, can we, like, what, can, what, what would you like to eat tonight? And he would say, eh, everything is good. And he'd say, yes, yes, Abuna, yes, but, but yeah, everything is available. So what would you like? like what is something that you'd be, you're, you're, you'd be willing to eat? And, and no matter how many times they tried, he would say, he would refuse to give an answer. He would refuse to choose something. Not because he was trying to be stubborn, not because he was trying to be difficult, but he was so dead to any preference that he didn't know what to choose. For him, option A, B, or C were all equal. So that's why he said, everything is good. Whatever you put in front of me, I will eat. You know, so it wasn't a matter of being difficult. It was really a matter of, of arriving at a point where whatever you put in front of him was the same. There was no, there was no distinction. Right? So I think he was so dead, again, to that, that sense of his, his own self that he simply, if, he, if food wasn't put in front of him, it, then it wasn't time to eat. You know, it wasn't an injustice in his, in his mind. You know? So I think, obviously, for those of us who are not at that level, right, we, we're not called to that level of, of restraint. Right? I mean, we have the right to, you know, to speak up and to, you know, to seek um, to seek justice. You know, we're not, we're not against all form of justice for ourselves or for other people. Um, but there is a sense that the saints teach us that as we mature in the spiritual life, we are less concerned about personal justice. We are less concerned about personal rights. We are less concerned about personal comfort and all of these things. And it becomes an opportunity for self-mastery to just you know, give up more and more of these things. But it's something that we have to sort of gradually build up to. It's not something that if we're not ready for and, and it's imposed on us, we become very resentful and bitter and angry people. So, you know, any kind of offering should be voluntary and should be done with a sense of um, peace and tranquility and, and um, uh, contentment. And, and, I, and I say that even with things like donating money to the church, donating your time to the church. Don't give more than you're capable of where it makes you become resentful or bitter. As soon as you start giving more than, your, than, the, than the strength that God has given you to give, then you need to pull back. And that means service in the church. It means your money. It means wh whatever it is. If you're, if you're, you know, yes, we want to build up more and more sort of spiritual stamina, but, but it's gradual. 
right? And so we can't stretch ourselves beyond what we're capable of at the moment, otherwise we rip. And that's not, that's not a healthy approach to spirituality. So, thank you. Thank you.